Somewhere in Washington right now, there is this whistleblower. We don't know who they are, what their job is, whether they're a man or a woman. The only thing we do know is that they are in the middle of a political firestorm. What prompted a whistleblower inside the intelligence community to raise what the community's top watchdog decided were, quote, urgent concerns? And why haven't those concerns been brought before Congress as the law requires? The president's whistleblower strategy, a Twitter defense. Trump did nothing wrong. All of this reviving questions about collusion. And of course, the more legal term of art when you try to do something illegal, conspiracy. About a week ago, I started hearing about this whistleblower. I have a feeling, though, that you were hearing about this before I was. <laughs> well, we first heard about the whistleblower. This would have been, I guess, a week ago Friday. Shane Harris is a reporter at The Washington Post, covers national security. He says this all started a few Fridays ago, Friday the 13th. That's when the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, revealed a whistleblower had filed a complaint, but that the director of national intelligence was blocking Schiff's committee from seeing it. We do not have the complaint. We do not know whether the press reports are accurate or inaccurate about the contents of that complaint. And then Adam Schiff very tantalizingly referred to the contours of what he knew about the complaint and said it strongly suggests that it might be about behavior by the president or senior administration officials. And that was sort of like chum in the water for journalists who then spent the following day sort of calling everybody we could we could think of to figure out what was this whistleblower complaint really about and, and what was the backstory. I, I wonder how common is it for the director of national intelligence to block a whistleblower from going to Congress? Because my understanding is that there's a really precise process that this follows. I have never heard of the director of national intelligence blocking a whistleblower from going to Congress. And, and, and what's supposed to happen here, and you're right, it, it, this is spelled out in the law, and, and I think it's fairly unambiguous in the plain language of the statute. What the statute says is that when the Office of the Inspector General gets a whistleblower complaint, they evaluate how credible and urgent it is. If it's both, like this one, it's sent to the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, almost as a courtesy. At that point, the law says the DNI shall transmit to Congress this complaint. Uh, and that's not what happened here. This is the fr why Adam Schiff, I think, was so apoplectic, right, is because it became clear that rather than just turning the whistleblower complaint over, what he understood was that the DNI had gone and sought guidance from the Department of Justice. That's also not supposed to happen. So at the very least, it said, A, there's something unusual about this complaint. But B, now we've got another arm of government run by a political appointee of the president, the attorney general, coming in and telling the DNI, do not tell Congress about this whistleblower. So here we are in the middle of a tug of war. On one side, a president and his Department of Justice looking to protect executive power. On the other, a congressional committee that is trying to oversee that president. And all of them are searching for legal arguments to defend their point of view. 
But then separate to that, of course, is the issue of what exactly did this whistleblower say? And did he say something that was potentially politically damaging to the president? And that's why the Justice Department and we now think the White House Counsel's Office are coming in and trying to silence it. Today on the show, the mystery of the White House and the whistleblower. Shane Harris has been breaking news on this story from the beginning. He's going to walk us through what you need to know. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, so let's talk a little bit about what we know and what we don't right now. So for a little while, we didn't even know who the whistleblower was complaining about. But then we very quickly got the sense it could be the president. And then we began getting these reports from you and other people that it involved Ukraine. So tell me a little bit, if you could, just sum up what we think we know right now. What we think we know is that on July 25th, the president, President Trump, had a phone call with the president of Ukraine. That we do know. That's a fact. And... We know from reporting that on that phone call, eight different times, he brought up that Ukraine should look into these allegations against Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. And Trump links links this to what he views as kind of endemic corruption and a problem that Ukraine is having with corruption and saying, you know, if we're going to have a good relationship, you need to look into this and kind of get your house in order. So eight different times pressuring the president of Ukraine to open up an investigation on Joe Biden's son. Do we know that that's what the whistleblower is complaining about? We don't know 100 percent, and here's why. What we know about the whistleblower's complaint is that it involves a communication by the president with a foreign leader, it involves Ukraine, it involves some kind of promise, and I put that word in quotation marks because that's sort of the, 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 the word that people of our sources have been telling us is at issue here. Now, that certainly strongly suggests that the whistleblower is talking about this particular phone call on July 25th, which the president has acknowledged. But what we also know from Inspector General testimony earlier this week is that it's not just about a phone call. This whistleblower is, we understand, making allegations about a series of different events or actions revolving around Ukraine and the administration's dealings with Ukraine. So there's this phone call, but we think there are other events as well. And in order for the inspector general to find this a credible allegation and kind of to go through the check the boxes that it meets something that should be reported to Congress, it has to involve a flagrant violation of the law or a kind of corrupt purpose, and it has to involve an intelligence activity, so something that goes on in the intelligence community. So the question Shane's asking himself here is how does this presidential phone call get swept up in a whistleblower complaint from the intelligence community? That part's still a little fuzzy to us, frankly. Why does the president having a phone call with the president of Ukraine constitute an intelligence activity? But then there's this other piece. At the time that the president was talking to the president of Ukraine, 
there was a $250 million aid package that Congress had approved for military and intelligence support to the Ukrainian government, essentially to help them defend against Russian aggression. And we remember back in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea and annexed that from the Ukraines. They seized their sovereign territory. There has been a lot of reporting, and now there's a subject of three different congressional investigations into whether the president, President Trump, was slow rolling that funding and not letting, you know, sort of stopping it from going to Ukraine to exert some kind of leverage or pressure on the government of Ukraine to go investigate Joe Biden's son. It would be reasonable, I think, to assume that if the whistleblower believes that the president were exercising some kind of leverage or improperly trying to stop funding that included military and intelligence support, that that might trigger that intelligence activity piece in the whistleblower law. So at this point, all we know, phone call, Ukraine, the president pressuring the president of Ukraine on Joe Biden, but it seems like there's perhaps this other piece about him holding out or threatening to withhold funding that Congress, you know, duly authorized and passed uh, for Ukraine to defend itself against Russia. The question becomes, was the president sort of trying to use that as as pressure or kind of extort the Russian or the Ukrainian government into investigating the son of his political opponent? And I guess we should say that the money was eventually released this month, but that came well after the whistleblower complaint. Yeah, in fact, the money was released, and there had been press reporting at the time that it was being slow rolled. Interestingly, it was released days within the um, inspector general of the DNI notifying Congress about this complaint. Now, we in the public didn't know about that yet, but I think that's very interesting that once that complaint at least the notice of the complaint goes to Congress, that money does start flowing. And what we know from reporting as well, that by the time that the public found out about the whistleblower complaint from Adam Schiff, the White House counsel was aware of it, as was the Justice Department. So it wasn't just the DNI that knew about this whistleblower. It was also pieces of the Trump administration and important offices within the administration as well. Is that how that's supposed to work, that those offices know about a whistleblower? (laughs) No, (laughs) this is not how it's supposed to work. In fact, you know, the heart of the whistleblower statute and the heart and the spirit of whistleblower protections, of course, in general, is that there has to be an avenue for a government employee to come forward and, and, and raise an issue about possible wrongdoing or illegal acts and have anonymity because they want to be protected. <clears throat> they want to be protected from retribution. And you know, once this person's name becomes known, he or she would very justifiably fear being demoted or penalized at work, possibly fired. And of course, in this political environment, has every reason to expect that if he were exposed or she exposed, supporters of the president might come after that person or harassing them or or, or maybe doing worse. So this is it's always delicate with whistleblowers, mainly because of their their jobs being at risk. Here we're actually, I think, talking about potentially even more because of the explosive political nature of this. So that's why you keep the name and identity and the complaint away from political op, uh, uh, officials. Well, and we already see the president going on Twitter and saying that this is a partisan person, whoever this whistleblower is. How much do we know about their role and how they would have even known about this phone call? Well, what we know is that this individual is an employee in the intelligence community. So that means he or she works for an intelligence agency. 
and at some point was detailed to the White House as well, uh, working on the National Security Council. Now, that in itself is not unusual. A lot of intelligence agency employees go over and do a detail there, maybe working on a particular country like Russia or a particular issue set like cybersecurity because they're like the subject matter experts and they come work on the NSC where a lot of the policies around this get crafted. Um, And from reporting, what we understand is that the individual may not have actually been in the White House, may have already returned back to his or her home agency when this uh, phone call happened and maybe some other activity around it. So could have learned about it from colleagues in the White House, could have learned about it from readouts or reports or memos that are created after the president has conversations with foreign leaders. Regardless of getting into the how, it would, it, would, it would need for in order for the IG to find it to be credible. I think it would have to be some kind of documentation was involved here. So this person, I don't think, was just passing on rumor. I think this individual, you know, had something to back up the claim of wrongdoing. And these calls, there are often transcripts of them, right? Yeah. In fact, I think that it, not only transcripts on our side, but apparently transcripts on the other side. And I have to suspect that the reason we know from a report in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago um, that the president mentioned Joe Biden and his son eight times is because the Ukrainians have a recording of that call, too. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this. Like, how do these calls usually work? Well, usually when the president calls a foreign leader, um, it's set up well in advance. There are people from both governments on each end of the call. Uh, So it's not like the two of them are having a private phone conversation. There are note takers. There are people who are going to take... Uh, make memos for the record. Oftentimes, the subjects that they're going to talk about are actually agreed upon in advance. And this is a very kind of formal event when they speak to each other. Obviously, if they know each other and they're friendly, there might be some you know, pleasantries exchanged. In this case, uh, President Trump says he was calling essentially to you know, congratulate uh, the new president. And, 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 and then he says you know, to encourage him to look into corruption in his country and then goes into talking about Joe Biden. This kind of request, asking the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden, it puts Ukraine in a bind. Since 2014, the country's been locked in conflict with Russia. They need U.S. support to bolster their military. But they've also got to manage this relationship with Donald Trump, who we know from reporting that we've done at The Post, views Ukraine as kind of a nuisance. And he's said to officials in his administration, you know, anytime we try to help out the Ukrainians, it just upsets Russia, and I don't want to do that. So Ukraine finds itself having to, on the one hand, defend from Russia, and on the other hand, try and not upset President Trump, who seems to be more friends with Vladimir Putin than he is with the government in Ukraine. And that's kind of where we are now in the geopolitics of it. And you've seen, even as these allegations have been coming out, Ukrainian officials kind of rushing to get in front of a camera and say, no, 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 we don't think that the president's trying to pressure us. Uh, they were just having, you know, leader-to-leader conversations. I think that tells you that the Ukrainians are very nervous about being perceived as somehow antagonizing President Trump and trying to set him up or make him look bad because, frankly, they want his support. And and at the time of this phone call back in July, we're actually desperate to get a meeting with the president as well. It was very important for the president of Ukraine to be seen, literally seen, sitting with President Trump uh, as a show of solidarity and as a show, a demonstration that uh, he could count on the United States to to be in Ukraine's corner. And of course, the president of Ukraine and President Trump may be meeting at the U.N. General Assembly 
later this week, I think. Yeah, that's right. And won't that be potentially a very awkward meeting? President Zelensky of Ukraine and President Trump are scheduled to meet. And, and that is something I'm sure that the Ukrainians would like to see still still happen. But of course, both of them are going to get questions about this and are going to get questions about this phone call that they had. It's going to be extremely awkward. It wouldn't surprise me if the meeting were called off uh, at the last minute. Maybe they'll meet behind closed doors, but but boy, do they find themselves uh, in a, an incredibly awkward position now being on this world stage where all these world leaders are there and everyone's going to want to ask both men uh, only about one subject. There's one more character that Shane Harris wants you to pay attention to as this drama unfolds. Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. Giuliani has been doing everything he can to shift the public's attention from the president back to Joe Biden. Rudy Giuliani has really been for some months now aggressively lobbying and trying to pressure Ukrainian officials into investigating Joe Biden's son. We should say, full stop here, there is zero evidence that Joe Biden's son or Joe Biden did anything illegal or improper with regards to Ukraine. But Giuliani really has been the tip of the spear from Trump world on this effort to prod and pressure Ukraine to start putting the heat on Joe Biden. He's gone over to Europe and had meetings with them. He's talked about this uh, publicly in interviews in recent months. And so when 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 we see him kind of taking to the airwaves this week, And talking about this whistleblower complaint and about Ukraine and Trump and Biden, you know, he's been at this for months now uh, and doing it in his capacity as the president's lawyer. You know, he's never shied away from that. He likes to say, well, I'm a private citizen, but I'm also the lawyer of the president. Uh, And we know from reporting in some cases has even, you know, leaned on administration officials to set up meetings for him with Ukrainians. So so Rudy is kind of like going back and forth between them. I'm just a friend of the president and a normal citizen here, except I'm his lawyer, and now I'm talking to people in the administration about it. Um, you know, Rudy is is all kinds of ways deep into the you know the Ukraine conspiracy theory. Yeah, which which brings up something else, which is that right now we're in the middle of the messaging war, which is we're seeing the information come out from reporters like you, and as it does, we're seeing people try to frame what that information means. And what was so striking about this past week to me, you know, you saw that appearance by Rudolph Giuliani on Chris Cuomo's show, and he made this remarkable turnabout. He started out by saying, you know, of course, you know, we would not do this with Ukraine. And then, well, of course I did. And so you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden. Of course I did. You just said you didn't. No, I didn't ask him to look into Joe Biden. I asked him to look into the allegations that related to my client, which tangentially involved Joe Biden in a massive bribery scheme. And it seemed to me like this sort of beginning of trying to message that we did it and it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I am having flashbacks to, you know, the Russia story, which I spent nearly three years of my of my time as a journalist working on. Um, It's many of the same themes. But to your point, 
it's also the same kind of pushback. You know, Rudy Giuliani was a stalwart and was always on the cable shows going out and talking about how there was no collusion. But even if Donald Trump did talk to Russia, there'd be nothing wrong with it. And the fact that Giuliani is out and frankly, the fact that cabinet secretaries, including Pompeo and Secretary Mnuchin, who I don't know what his connection is to this at all, have been on the Sunday shows trying to defend this, I think tells you that that messaging machine has spun back up again. And it's going to be the same plays that we saw during the Russia story where the effort is create obfuscation, create confusion and doubt, shoot the messenger in the case of the whistleblower, you know, the president saying he must be a partisan, even though he appears not to know who it is, and then say that the media is biased or the media is distorted or they're focusing on the wrong story because why aren't you investigating Joe Biden? Hmm. The allegations here that the president may have offered aid or withheld aid in exchange for the investigation of a political foe, I feel like we need to really lay out the stakes of an action like that. Because I heard one person say, well, it's, you know, it sounds like bribery. But then I heard another say, well, it's actually it's more than that. Like we we actually shouldn't frame it. That's too small to understand this kind of transaction if it's true. And I wonder if you think about that the same way. Yeah, I do. And and so <clears throat> let me try and describe it succinctly this way with the caveat that like, let's take all these dots and say, okay, if this is true, if what happened. There's there's strong indication that the president used taxpayer money, congressionally appropriated funds in the form of an aid package to try and pressure a foreign government to interfere in the presidential election by smearing his political opponent and the person who is quite likely to be running against him for the White House. That scenario, if that is accurate of what happened here, I think it is objectively fair to say is a kind of corruption that we've just never seen in the White House. And perhaps the irony of it is that after spending three years with the Mueller investigation and the FBI investigation previously to that, you know, talking as a country, having a national discussion about the legality and the morality and the ethics of foreign interference in an election and a president who insisted that there was none and he had nothing to do with it, it's starting to look like in this case, he not only invited it, he potentially engineered it and may have used taxpayer funds as a tool to that end. That's, again, if that's true, that's astonishing. What do people need to be watching for this week? Because we'll see some testimony on Capitol Hill too, right? Yeah, this week, Thursday, the acting director of national intelligence, Joe McGuire, <clears throat> is supposed to appear before Adam Schiff's Intelligence Committee. And this is the guy who blocked the whistleblower complaint. Yeah, it, it is. But, you know, there's something to remember about McGuire. It, it, technically speaking, yes, insofar as he's the acting DNI. But a couple of things to keep in mind about McGuire. A, he's in an acting position. B, he's not really a big fan of the president. <laughs> um, I, I know from just talking to people who know Joe McGuire, he is not a partisan. And I think that he probably finds himself in a really difficult position that I believe that he would argue was not of his making insofar as, you know, his office, um, yes, consulted with the Justice Department, 
and then had to go to the White House. But it's the Justice Department and the White House that are telling the DNI here, you know, you can't transmit this to Congress. And I just have to imagine that Joe McGuire is looking at people in the White House and the DOJ and saying, great, you know, you've put me in this position where I look like the person whose idea it was to withhold this thing. This is your thing. This is your legal interpretation of what I'm supposed to do. This involves the president. You know, why am I the one stuck holding this? I don't know if he'll testify. Um, they may try, the, the administration may prevent him from testifying. But boy, I would love to hear Joe McGuire's response to just, you know, like, you know, what kind of, what kind of month have you been having? <laughs> yeah, busy, maybe? Yeah. How do you really feel? <laughs> A lot of Sunday phone calls? Yeah, yeah. So what do we need to look for now? I mean, we've begun to see Democrats speaking more strongly about the idea that we need to investigate this. And to do that, we need to trigger impeachment. We just saw Adam Schiff go in front of cameras and say, we may have crossed a Rubicon. But I'm wondering if it's going to be if it's going to need to be more than just even very high up Democrats making noise here for this to become something we agree we need to investigate. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think the place to look would be Senate Republicans. You know, if, if one of them breaks, breaks ranks and says, this is really troubling and this is really serious and we've got to take a look at it, then you start to see a crack in the wall. Because right now, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, she, she said this publicly, is not, is not in favor of bringing impeachment because she knows the Senate would never vote to remove the president. If you start to see... You know, one or two, I mean, gosh, one, it would be, you know, incredible if they broke any system, but maybe some of these moderate Republicans start to question it. That's, that's going to be a sign. Because you are, as you said, you're seeing Democrats in the House, notably Adam Schiff, who have not really been on the impeachment train, looking like they're buying a ticket. <laughs> and there is something about this particular story that caught on very quickly uh, and, and and has created a kind of new momentum of its own. It's, it's not going to go away. It'll figure in the campaign. But I'm watching those Senate Republicans, every word they say, very closely. Shane Harris, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Shane Harris reports on intelligence and national security over The Washington Post. All right, that's the show. If you want to dig a little deeper and find out what these allegations are against Joe Biden and his son, Hunter, you can go back into our archives and listen to a show called The Cloud Over Joe Biden's Son. It ran this summer. Look it up on iTunes. It's right there, and it'll walk you through that step by step. If you find that helpful or any of our shows, go over and leave us a rating or review. You can do it really simply on Apple Podcasts. We love when you do it because it lets us know how we're doing, what we can do better. And, you know, we show our parents. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow.